When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, you're listening to Rock and or Roll, part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. I'm BJ, and on this very special episode, I have a very special guest, Cheetah Chrome, guitar player, songwriter from perhaps my favorite punk band of all time, The Dead Boys. I originally attempted to contact Cheetah a few years ago because The Dead Boys played a show in June of 1977 with Cheap Trick in Cleveland, and I wanted to ask him about that show. And it took him a few years to see my message, and by the time he wrote back, the book was already finished. So instead of talking to him for my book, I invited Cheetah to come on the podcast, and he graciously agreed. And then, as I was talking to him, he revealed an amazing Cheap Trick-related fact about the Dead Boys. You'll hear that later in the episode. You'll hear this revelation, which I 100% would have put in my book, but of course it's too late. Unless I get to do a second printing, maybe my editor will let me add this. I am not sure. Anyways, so I hope you enjoy this fun conversation that I got to have with one of my idols from the Dead Boys, Cheetah Chrome. So one thing I was thinking about that I really wanted to ask you about, I guess we'll see how much you would have to say about it, but I've always been fascinated with just, of course, with the history of rock and roll and how things developed. But since I wasn't there, it's a lot harder looking back to try to understand how things progressed, especially to culminate in something like punk rock. And so since you were a part of it and you were witnessed it all in real time, I was wondering if you could elaborate maybe on how, how punk, how, what, what came to be called punk developed, like to get where you ended up with the dead boys. For example, I think it's really interesting that you early on, you guys covered uh, death may be your Santa Claus and like, like the dictators did the moon upstairs from the same album. And and that yeah. like that's an example of a band that I don't think many people would associate with with punk, but it you know so it's really interesting to think of Mott the Hoople, but especially that album Brain Capers as yeah. having been really influential, you know.
was on that chapter to catch them out the hoop of my luck. Um, they were warming up for traffic. I'd never heard of them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no. so, so, so I was lucky, man. I got on board early, you know, when I was about 14, 15. No, that's a good question, man. I really like that one. You know, rock and roll to me can be traced, you know, just like any American rock and roll can be traced all the way back to the old blues guys, if you ask me, you know? Yeah. I think we're kind of split off. Was when the young white boys started bringing the blues back from England, you know, <laughs> in a different form, you know? Mm-hmm. You know, to me, the Beatles were always pretty much the first punk band, you know? I mean, before they wore the suits and everything and had the, the haircuts, you know, they were pretty much a bunch, you know, running around in black leather clothes. John Lennon's known to wear a, t- a toilet seat around his head one night, you know, around his neck one night on stage, and... They were constantly spitting and swearing and just, you know, normal, normal teenage kids, you know? And it was one of, you know, Brian um, Epstein became imaginary changed into such, the, the, the suits and stuff, you know? Yeah. But before that, I, you know, there's a book called, um, oh, I can't remember, by Mark Lewis. It's the Beatles... History. It's supposed to be a trilogy, and only one book's come out so far. Yeah, I think it's but called it comes, Tune In, right? Yeah, Tune In or something like that. Yeah, and it's great, you know. And I mean, if you read that book, man, tell, you know, you get the really history of those guys. You know, they're like, they, they all grew up in the projects. They all fucking, you know. I mean, two of them did. I mean, George and Ringo did. You know, it turns out they were all, you know, pretty good fighters in, in a lot of fights, actually. And, um, just crap, you know, things like that. And I think from there, you know, the logical progression is up to bands like, um, oh, like Little, you know, records like Little Black Eggs by the Nightcrawlers, uh, Gloria, you know, by them, um, you know, that, that kind of stuff. There was kind of a, like 96 Tears. You know, there was all these great songs that were never really hits. The bands were never really famous, but they were just amazing songs, you know? Yeah. And in the mid, growing up in the Midwest, I mean, those songs were always on the radio, so it was always kind of, you know, you had a soundtrack, you know, going on, you know, every day, you know, it was just, you know, amazing back then, you know? And the only thing I've seen like it has been the punk rock thing. I mean, you know, and then rap after that. But, um, like, Marco Hoople was, a, you know, a great example. There's another bunch of, you know, council house kids, you know, forming a band, you know? Mm-hmm. So I think there's a there's a big that's, that would be my lineage of rock of rock, rock and roll punk rock. It really was kind of a throwback to like garage rock, right? Yeah, I mean, it really was. I mean, where I mean, until you had bands like the Stooges and the MC5 that actually got somewhere, you know, actually got a reputation. You had like these little one hit wonders that were just really cool. You know, it was very good for your musical development, that's for sure. I mean, I loved it. You know, that, I always had something to learn how to play on guitar, you know? Yeah. You know, there's the term proto-punk that gets applied to, like, Rocket from the Tombs. I wonder, I wonder, because Rocket from the Tombs is, it had a very kind of unique sound for the time period. I mean, obviously, you have your influences, like you said, MC5 and the Stooges and... uh you know, the well, New York, the, I know you were a big fan of the New York Dolls. Oh, the Velvet Underground. Oh, yeah, the Velvet, yeah, Velvet Underground. 
I mean, the Velvets is probably where Rockets, you know, like for the Dead Boys and like where Peter and David were way, where, and Craig were way into the Velvets, you know? Yeah. In Bruce were way into the Stooges, the MC5, Alice Cooper, stuff like that, you know? It worked, you know, it was, it worked at the time, you know, because all of it was kind of around the same thing. But yeah, it was a very different sound, you know, <laughs> for sure. I mean, David's voice, you know, definitely set us apart for most bands. Yeah. You know, it was all kind of just an accident that happened that was great for a, a year or whatever it was, you know. I mean, I don't think we were together even like 15 months where we got it. Like, right. A lot of the songs that came out of that band ended up Dead Boys songs, and it didn't have yeah. to be adapted a whole lot to become punk rock songs, you know? Rockets was, you know what I mean? Yeah. We definitely came out of the Stooges, MC5, that kind of, you know, Rolling Stones, that kind of an attitude, you know? You know, the arty thing about it was, you know, you know, you had, the other influences were kind of what made it really interesting for me, you know? And the, the fact that we worked together on the songs, it wasn't just me writing them. I would have dead voice took over. It was pretty much me just writing them the way I heard them in my head without anybody else's influence, you know? Mm-hmm. So I just basically, you know, corrected anything that, you know, was all, because I mean, <laughs> we used to go, I mean, I don't even people think we used to count bars off. It was like, I mean, we, we actually went to, to do this uh, remake of the album. We got to fix it because it was all, like, you know, music's supposed to be at fours and eights and everything, and Rockets is like in fours or fives and threes. Right. <laughs> it was like, I mean, you know, we kind of just went about, waited for whatever Dave wanted to come in and sing. <laughs> so it was, uh, he just didn't count, you know? I mean, he, he, did not, he did not count four in his head all the time, you know? <laughs> so, it was, uh, so it was interesting. But yeah, it was, you know, basically that kind of a thing where we just had to basically fix any uh, mathematical incorrections in the music, and, you know? <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting how Rock from the Tomb split off kind of into Per Ubu and the Dead Boys, and they're such different bands. But I think, like you're saying, you have the elements of both in Rock from the Tombs. You have kind of the artsy, almost proggy yeah. kind of elements that ended up in Per Ubu, just kind of very kind of eccentric, I guess. And then you, yeah, have, we... then you have just the straight-ahead rock of like, 
what love is and stuff that ends up being the dead boys. Yeah, it was, you know, because I think Rock of the Truth, I mean, we were, I mean, we were trying to close this thing to us the way we really thought about things. It was probably like Hawkwind or something, you know what I mean? Right, right. It wasn't, uh, you know, it wasn't everything, you know, it wasn't our one of our influences, but it came out sounding like something completely different, you know? But it was just the sum of a, you know, because everybody's, you know, musicians are sponges, and we absorb stuff, and it comes back out in a different form, you know? Yeah. So where do the Ramones and Richard Hell and the Sex Pistols fit into like this punk, the development of punk? Like the were the Sex Pistols influential on what turned into the Dead Boys? No, I mean it was you know we were pretty well you know we were already playing CBGBs around around the time when Days came out you know right. The Rockford Tombs have definitely been they've definitely come and gone right you know. Came along there to break. I mean, if anything, Sex Pistols were any kind of an influence on a Dead Boys really, it was probably with the haircuts. It wasn't, you know? Mm hmm. Yeah, yeah, because like the very early pictures, you guys still had the long hair. Yeah. Yeah. It was, you know, because we were still, you know, we were looking for a look. We were still, yeah, you know, I still had, you know, hair down a pole close to my ass, you know? And it was, uh, you know, we do, I don't want to say we, like, jumped on a bandwagon, but it was just like, we were kind of like, well, you know, it does look pretty good. We were on just fucking do that, you know? Yeah. And then we got up to New York. We just kind of get, kept getting, getting trimmed shorter and shorter, you know? And then finally, one day, it was like, ended up with me buzzing most of mine off and just letting it go. And then fucking, uh, you know, Jeff Magnum, when he joined the band, and had to cut his hair. Oh, that's a... That was a ceremony right there. <laughs> <laughs> well, some people say, you know, that Richard Hell kind of originated the look and the Sex Pistols 
took it from him, but well, that's was hurt too because I mean I saw I had seen the uh, the Heartbreakers, you know, yeah. which is another reason, you know, was we, we were, I mean, we you know we just noticed the ride that hair was getting shorter. I mean, Johnny cut his, you know, Jerry cut his, you know, and you know, Sylvain was his was short again, you know. So it was like kind of we were like, oh, everybody's cutting off their fucking hair, you know. Yeah. So it was just kind of one of those things where I, mean, I was kind of glad to get rid of it. Tell you the truth, it been, you know, it was just like over a bunch of split ends and you know, pretty gross, really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, that was kind of, I mean, I can't really, you know, give that one to the Sex Pistols because, you know, everybody else was doing it, too. I mean, you know, and I don't know, you know, the early New Yorkers, like, I guess when the Heartbreakers first went over to England or something, was kind of when everything got influenced, when Richard Hell influenced, you know, you know, Malcolm had seen Richard Hell around and all that. That's right. you know, obviously where it came from, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, the music is taking made such a dramatic change, too. I mean, the Heartbreakers, you know, we watched them pretty close because they were, you know, they were just a great band and it was, uh, you know, so different after the Dolls, you know what I mean? I mean, Johnny played completely differently, and, you know. Well, until years later, I found out I was, was so vain on the record. <laughs> I'd seen the Dolls live and Johnny could still play it live. So. Yeah, was the thing about the Dolls was... Um... Was it kind of how sloppy and crazy they were? That kind of was. Oh, yeah. Plus, I was, you know, I was a big glam kid, you know, like I liked Omaha the Hoople, you know, and uh, Love the Sweet. You know, Bowie, Bowie was a big game changer for me, you know? Mm hmm. Because, uh, like, you know, I was in high school when Bowie came out. You know, we had Alice Cooper and all that stuff that we were listening to. Plus, we were listening to, you know, Lou Reed and all that stuff. So it was. I'll, I'll point to there is a lineage definitely there. There's a, definitely a straight line through to, to the Dead Boys, you know? Yeah, and Frankenstein, which, I mean, that's really just, you just changed that's the that. name from Frankenstein to the Dead Boys, basically, right? Right. Yeah. But probably the concept of Frankenstein was more of a glam rock band, right? Yeah, it totally was, yeah. yeah. You know, which was, you know, Basically, because Cleveland was so lame back then, it was like, uh, you know, you had, didn't have, uh, you, you know, all the bands are playing covers, and I'm talking about, you know, like, freaking Doobie Brothers covers, not, you know, not uh-huh. cool covers. So we didn't fit in at all anywhere, so we, we could just do whatever we wanted to, so we just experimented around all the time, you know? Yeah. I mean, Frankenstein, you gigs all dressed up in glam, and we did some gigs not wearing any at all, you know? So it was, you know, you never know what you're going to get with us. <laughs> <laughs> I know in your book you talk about hearing Search and Destroy for the first time, I think in a record store. and that... oh, no, It was over at Johnny Bliss's house, actually. Oh, yeah. okay. And, yeah. I mean, you really, that song really is the template for a lot of punk rock. I mean, that's, and that's what, like, 72 that comes out in that, or 73, and that's like... Uh, that's almost the first real punk song that has kind of all of the elements, I think. Well, I don't know. I think, you know, to me, you had to go back to the Funhouse for that. You know, I think, or the first studio's album, I mean, they had it in them already. You know what I mean? It was just when James Williamson changed the guitar to the band took on the new sound, you know? Yeah. 
And, and with, um, with Rob Power, Iggy had that look too. He had that. Yeah, we had that, that. Well, I mean, he had that for like one show, you know. <laughs> it was like, <laughs> you know, you know, but it was iconic when he did it. You know, that's when Mick Rock got a hold of him. You know, with the Stooges, I mean, before that, you know, he was wearing these torn jeans and a dog collar and all this stuff. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. And it wasn't, you know, all of a sudden he's wearing silver leather pants and where, you know, in the dyed his hair silver and all that. And he looked great with it, you know. And it was just a really, you know, definitely a great package, you know. Yeah. Plus the studios were as good live as they were on the record, you know what I mean? That's one thing a lot of people missed back then. You know, because they weren't, you didn't play, play a whole lot, you know. And when they... They did it was like in the Midwest, you know, it wasn't, you know, but they never played, they only played Cleveland a few times that I remember, you know, they were a very tight band. They were a really good band. So it wasn't a, you know, it wasn't like they didn't have talent. It was just people chose not to like them. The establishment was against them. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's, there's always like a common idea that punk, mu- punk musicians weren't necessarily good musicians, but it was more, the style of the music that people are, I think, interpreting as that of, you know, and over the course of the seventies with bands like Yes and Genesis. And well, yeah. Like- you know, that's what was coming up on there was, you know, you know, classically trained guys coming along and boring people, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was like, you know, you had, I mean, Emerson Lake and Paul or Christ almighty. Give me a fucking break. They had two good songs, you know? King Crimson, you know, and another one, you know, that, I mean, they had, you know, they were these prog rock bands that were just, you know, how fast can you play, how many scales, how many how much deep music theory can you talk about with reporters, you know? It's, <laughs> you know, it was very boring, whereas, you know, we, we saw rock and roll was more of a visceral thing, you know? Yeah. Kind of rebelling against all that, but I mean, if you listen to the Everybody listens to the MC5, you know, every one of their records knows goddamn well they can play their fucking instruments, you know? Oh, my God. High Time is one of the greatest albums ever, in my opinion. Exactly. I mean, that's like, like you know, that one there, that's as good as any Yes album. I mean, some of the plan on it, you know? I mean, it's just incredible. So, yeah, it's like, you know, they, they definitely had their chops, you know? And the Stooges did, too, you know? But it was just not what people were used to it was a little bit louder and they just didn't take it seriously but you know at the same time it was a lot of people did a lot more did than they thought because look what happened yeah
I wonder if you could talk about writing the writing of Sonic Reducer. It, it actually started with the lyrics, right? And then you were putting those to, to music? It was like the easiest song I've ever written in my life. David came in with the lyrics. We sat down and uh, I read through them once, you know. I was kind of going through it. Like the riff just kind of popped into my head. And we were done with it in about 10 minutes. We had the whole thing arranged and written in 10 minutes. It was like one of those ones where your antenna goes up and the universe sends you a song, you know? Yeah. Saw Pearl Jam do it at the garden last last week. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it's such a classic. Yeah, they put that out as, that was their second Christmas single, I remember. I wish they'd do a real record of it so I could get a pool or, you know, maybe a house, but, you know. (laughs) Yeah, I was thinking about that. You've got Pearl Jam and Guns N' Roses both covering your songs. <laughs> Those are pretty good if you want to, yeah, like you said, get a pool. <laughs> well, I mean, it's like, you know, it's like fucking, you know, Guns, or, you know, Guns N' Roses put theirs out on their album, you know? And yeah. So I only get royalties from ASCAP or Sonic from Pearl Jam. I only get performance royalties from that. I don't actually get physical royalties from uh, sales of records, you know? Yeah, it's too difference. bad they never stuck it on like a greatest hits or something. Right, there you go. That's exactly <laughs> what I wish they would. Somebody whispered at Eddie's ear. <laughs> yeah. I, I need retirement money, man. You know, sick of touring. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, we got, we got a kid getting ready to go to college, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah, no, I mean, it's uh, it's just really an honor to have bands like that. You know, do your songs, you know? And, you know, say, so, you know, like, it's nice to get, it's nice to have that, you know? And, you know, both bands have, you know, been very influential, so it does help spread the word either way, you know? Yeah, you know, the, the reason we got linked up is because I had sent you a message because I was working on my Cheap Trick book, and uh, Jeff Amon, oh, Jeff Amon, right. the, the bass player from Pearl Jam, he wrote the foreword for my book. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. I'll ask you about that cheap trick show in a little bit. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well, one thing, you know, we, we were alluding to Ain't It Fun, to Guns N' Roses covering Ain't It Fun. I wanted, I wanted to ask you if you could talk about Peter Laffner. I think he's a fascinating character. I, I you know, I, I wonder a lot about what happened to him, what he was like as a person and, and, why do you think he ended up dying so young? Um, I don't know if you if you would want to talk about Peter or maybe try to tell his story as well as you could. Um, no, Peter was you know a um, big part of my life back then. You know, yeah. and um, great guy. You know, um, back then we didn't know about old pitfalls like we have now. You know, so we were all taking drugs like crazy. I mean, Peter was a uh, a good partier, you know, and he had been for years, you know, and he, you know, he didn't have any filters when it came to that kind of thing, you know, it was pretty crazy um, that he died when he was 23, I mean, that still models my mind to your liberty to give up by the time you were 23. Yeah. Well, Peter was very much a, a visionary, you know, one of the most talented guys in town back then. He was big into old blues and acoustic blues and taught me a lot about all that kind of stuff. You know, taught me how to rehearse a band properly. And focusing musically, pretty much. We definitely had a big connection there. And, we, you know, we used to love to get drunk together, you know? <laughs> so it was, 
you know, but he was, you know, Walter was also going to speed a lot. He was also, you know, taking like one of his favorite things is there was this doctor's office on 55th and Euclid in Cleveland that used to throw out their samples in the dumpsters behind. He found out about it and he'd go back there and he'd just come back with all these pills. Oh, <laughs> you know, he's going to do dumpster diving at the doctor's office. And they had like everything in there. I mean, it was amazing. I'm surprised they even did that, you know. They, just take, they had old samples, you know, morphine or whatever. They just throw them in the fucking garbage. And then Peter found out about it and next thing you know, we were the garbage. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know so that was, like, Peter was a you know, very crazy guy, but he started, I guess, going off the deep end a little bit, just drinking a lot of whiskey, speed, whatever, ended up buying a gun, you know, acting a little bit strange, kind of scaring his friends, you know. I hadn't seen him in a while, and then the next thing you know, he came up to New York, and last thing I remember, he was on stage, he got kicked out of CBGB's because Patty Smith was on stage, and he was going to get up and try to jam with Patty. He knew her. I mean, it wasn't like he didn't know her, you know. I was sitting there after the gig, and Peter came back, and we ended up going to my house and getting a bunch of beer and just sitting around and talking until dawn, you know, and playing on guitars and stuff. And then um, he split, and that's the last time I saw him. You know, he was dead like a couple weeks later. Mm-hmm. And it was sad because he always had some good band going. He had, you know, he always went out on the edge, out on a limb, you know. He always put his heart on his sleeve. He was a good guy, man. It's just a shame that he didn't stay alive long enough, long enough to, you know, really do something important musically, uh, which I think his box set is pretty important musically. Actually, I think that finally came something came out where he it shows what he what he did, you know. Yeah, I love those like his bedroom recordings and stuff. It, I think, yeah, I think he probably would have done something really special if he had stuck around. I do too. I mean, it was, you know, because I mean, he just, his whole, all of his influences are just so fucking fascinating, you know? And he really dug deep into music, you know? Yeah, like one thing that stands out to me he, is he does that song Calvary Cross by Richard Thompson. Like, he, yeah, yeah. I was just going to mention it. He's the one term, uh, Richard, he's the one to turn me on to Richard Thompson. Yeah. You know, and things like that. And I mean, I, when I first heard Richard Thompson, I was like, well, you know, like, oh, who the hell is this? And why haven't I heard it before? And he said, oh, because he was in Fairport Convention before they didn't do stuff like this. Oh, okay. <laughs> you know? Yeah.
he had a pretty stable, you know, home life and all that. He's married. He had, you know, Charlotte. His wife was great. He had a nice place, you know, to live. And he was uh, playing all the time. But, you know, he was just driven, you know. And not just all, not driven to play, but to get fucked up. And, you know, just like I was, you know. Yeah. You discover drugs and it's, you, you know, back then you didn't realize how much it could destroy you. This song is called Ain't It Fun. You're gonna die young. It's dedicated to Jane Scott because she'll stay forever young. Forever 16. She won't die young. So another amazing character, of course, is Stiv, who yeah. it seems like Stiv was born to be a punk rock frontman. Like he, it was just the best. I mean, Stiv was born to be a frontman. I played in the punk rock one, you know, he was, uh, he was great. He was the best, you know, hands down if you ask me. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> yeah. When it comes to punk rock, he's my, he's probably my favorite. Just yeah. watching him, watching him perform, <laughs> very, oh, yeah. very entertaining. You know, he gave us all. He hurt, he, he hurt himself. He, you know, he used to have to get water drained out of his knees sometimes and come slamming down on him so hard. Uh-huh. You know, they had to stick a needle or break their off, blew it out. It was like, you know, he went through, you know, he paid for his hurt. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, he's also one of the sweetest guys in the world. One of the funniest human beings ever. Yeah, that's what I've read. A lot of people talk about what a nice guy he was, and uh, it seems like his onstage persona was very much uh, a, about the performance, right? But he was a very different guy off stage. It was two sides of the same coin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it wasn't all I contrived, but it was like you know, you know, we couldn't be that we the bastards all day. <laughs> <laughs> you know. <laughs> I mean, we were, you know, we would have died if we tried to live the life, you know, like our on-stage image, you know, 24 hours a day. He had to step away from it sometimes, you know? Well, you guys kind of really ran with this concept of the dead boys 
And uh, I mean, I guess especially you, you could have a pretty creepy vibe <laughs> when you were on stage. <laughs> oh, you know, I was, <laughs> I was a weird kid growing up. <laughs> yeah, but just that that concept of the Dead Boys. It's like I remember when uh, when Marilyn Manson first came out, and I used to see. They would have like a picture of him in Rolling Stone and he just looked like a corpse. You know, you would have this insane image. But that seems like kind of what you guys were going for a little bit, right? Oh, yeah. We didn't need the contacts and all that shit to do it, though. You know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we were just there, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What you saw was what you got, pretty much. We were very set in our ways, and we had our certain, you know, it was basically we woke up in the morning, started partying, and fucking didn't end until fucking two o'clock the next morning, you know? <laughs> I mean, that was a typical day for the dead boys on the road, you know? And make, you know, it made for interesting living situations. <laughs> <laughs> So I had a, I had originally sent you that message about that show you did at the Agora where you were on the same bill with Cheap Trick and the Dictators. That yeah. Was, that was, so that was before Young, Loud, and Snotty. I think that was before you even had your record deal because it was... Yeah, it was one of those gigs. Where, it was one of those gigs in between because we recorded the album in February and I think we played it like over July 4th weekend. They sent us out to Cleveland to do some hometown shows. We hadn't played there in a long time. Right. And we played this festival outside of Cleveland. It's this place, Chippewa Lake, which was like a campground kind of place, but they had a big place. They had like 10,000 people in there for this festival. And it was like us and Mahogany Rush and somebody else were headlines. It was like our first headline, big headline gig. And um, then it took to attack Cleveland on there too. And that was like, you know, basically our first big road gig. And it was funny because for the, the story I was going to tell you is this funny is because the Dead Boys when we first came to New York were one of our first trips up there. We were over at Max's in Peter Crowley's office, and Cheap Trick was doing their I guess their showcase for Epic Records downstairs. I remember we were all sitting there having a meeting, and Robin Zander came up and opened the door and asked Peter some question or something. And we were like, oh, I want to go and see, we're going to go down and see these guys, you know? And so we had, we had seen Cheap Trick. We just thought they were great, you know? So you, you saw them at Max's Kansas City? Yeah, I saw them. I'd actually seen them before they did that, before they did that gig together, you know? Wow. Didn't meet any of the guys or anything, but all of them boys were there for their first show. The first, I don't know, it was their first New York show or what it was, you know. But I know, holy was, shit, I know, yeah, they only played the one show. It was uh, September 16th, 76. It was, uh, yeah, the and Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley were there. Do you remember that? Right, yes, yes, holy were, shit. Yes. So, all of the dead boys were there, 
Yeah, all of us. Oh, my God. I would have put that in my we book. Got, <laughs> I know. That's what I'm saying. That's the one story I would have been able to give you. Was that, you know? I, well, um, I know that uh, I think um, David Johansson was there and the guys. Oh, from, everybody. The guys from yeah. Fast and Wayne County. and <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, we went up. All, we were up. We had just played our first gig at CBGB's, I think, like in August. Wow. Of '76. Wow. Yeah. So we were just like our, our second trip to New York or something like that, and we went over to Max's, and Peter Crowley, who um, yeah, had seen the CBGBs, was talking to us about playing at Max's, you know. And this is before they had the whole big battle between Max's and you know Manitoba and Wilkins County and all that, you know. Right. <laughs> yeah. So it was so it was still a big love-in scene, you know, among the clubs in New York. You know, everybody supported each other then. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, all the dead boys were there for that gig. <laughs> oh, my God. Stiv, everybody was there? Everybody, the whole band. I mean, we were all with our girlfriends, yeah. <laughs> Holy shit. What, what do you remember about it? Just they were great. You know, everybody, everybody loved it. We, was, we were having a great time with that. Cause we were, but I also remember that when we were playing, we found out we were playing with them. You know what do you call it? The, you know at the Agora. Yeah, we were like, oh man, the dictators better fucking watch out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <You know>? yeah. <laughs> and so I'm glad. I'm actually glad we were actually glad we were opening that gig. You know. Oh, Cheap so you guys played first, and Cheap Trick were in the middle. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. uh, you know we were so. Get, we were still getting tight, you know. And Chief Trick was already fucking massively tight. He had those great vocals, and I was just a great band, you know. It was, to this day, I love Chief Trick, you know. Yeah. But yeah, that was a, that was a funny story. I finally met, you know. I, I must have met those guys at some point, but I can't remember when. So you guys just happened to be at Max's talking to Peter about playing there. And that was the yeah. night. That was the night the cheap trick were gonna play. So you just happened to be there and happened to see them. That's wild. yeah. Like, we never nothing, and uh, we went in. You know, I remember me and Stephen Zero were talking about because we were, we were all you know loved the Beatles, loved like harmonies and the move, and you know things like that. So we, we had a lot of common musical ground with Cheap Trick. We could see where they were coming from. We just thought they were brilliant. You know. Yeah. And then their first record came out. Of course, we loved that, you know? Yeah. They were there in New York recording the album. Basically, they did that show at Max's so that Robin could warm up to do his vocals because that was, they had like two weeks there where they hadn't played a gig and that's the longest they had, they had never gone even more than a couple days without playing a show. So that's basically why yeah. they did the Max's show was just so that he could warm up and then record his vocals for that first album. Yeah, it was, we were, we were we thought it was weird, but they hadn't really we hadn't seen them playing Cleveland or anything, and they lived like in you know Rockford. You know, we thought they'd be they were touring around. They would have come through Cleveland and all that, but I guess they were probably playing down like Kent State or something. You know, before '77, they didn't really do much outside of that. Just like kind of the Wisconsin, Illinois, they would venture to like Michigan and Minnesota, but yeah, they didn't really. Yeah, I don't think they did play Cleveland. Maybe once or twice, at like a club, but yeah, yeah, Max's would have been the first time they ever played in New York. So. Yeah, 
I mean, that was a memorable show. I mean, I remember that one. And plus, you know, we'd run into um, Gene and Paul, who we had met in Cleveland, real briefly. And uh, then, uh, and see, see, like I, I did talk to Robin a bit that night, and probably Tom. I don't know. You know, it was a long time ago. Wow. You know, we were kind of standing around the bar. There was, you know, it was one of those big things where it was an industry party with free booze. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's pretty easy to remember. I mean, it's pretty easy to forget the lot part, little details about that. <laughs> yeah, like everybody from Epic Records was there, and and Jack oh, Doug- Jack Douglas was there. Yeah, no, it was a big night, and uh, you know, people said, oh, okay, let's go down and see the band. Okay, yeah, let's go see it. And all of a sudden, we got hit over the head, you know. <laughs> and it was- Oh, that's amazing! The, the, to to know that the Dead Boys were there at Max's, <laughs> that is really great. I, uh, I I'm gonna be able to make a couple. I need to make a couple corrections. I don't know if I'm ever gonna have another printing of the book, but just in case that there's a couple corrections I, that the publisher said I could send, and I'm gonna see if there's another printing. If maybe I can get put this in there that you guys were there because that's pretty yeah. fucking great. Um, yeah, feel free to man. Yeah, and you know the that was the day after. I think it was the day after that they played with you at the Agora that they went and took the pictures at Shea Stadium that were the cover of In Color, where they're on, oh okay they're on the motorcycles and the scooters. It was the next day that they did that, and then the day after that they went to Canada to jump on the Kiss tour, and then they were on tour with Kiss for like a month and a half or whatever. So yeah. that's why they were out on the East Coast because they were about to go on the Kiss tour, and they just played Oops. that show in Cleveland before they left, basically. Yeah. Okay. Well, it was a good show. I mean, it was a great, it was a great night, man. Did it seem like the crowd in in Cleveland knew Cheap Trick, or or they had their record out by then? But they they had their record out. I think. Um... Can I use two thousand? I think probably the dictators and dead boys were probably at that point, or better known, yeah. like like press wise, but but industry wise, Cheap Trick was probably better known. Yeah, I remember. I just remember we spent most of that day or the day before. You know, we had a barbecue with the dictators. Yeah, yeah. There's the, there's the whole story in your book <laughs> about that. Yeah. yeah. And um, then we came back down, and, um, and we did the gig. And I mean, everybody, you know, the dictators killed it too. I mean, it was a good, it was a great show. I mean, everybody. I love, killed. I love the dictators, yeah. You know, they were at their at their best right around that time, and they, you know, we were at our best, and Cheap Trick was great. You know, they were at their best, and it was like, you know, it was a good show for everybody because uh, they put in perfect with us. You know. Yeah. That was the cool thing about Cheap Trick is they could fit in with any punk band, you know. I mean, they really yeah, could, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have I have said before that if I had a time machine, that might be where I would go as to that show because <laughs> those three bands <laughs> on the same bill is kind of mind blowing to me. Yeah, and those guys were, and they're also nice, nice guys too, you know. Yeah, I mean, not to actually hang out with them a bit, you know. I remember telling them we'd seen, seen him at seen him at Max's, you know. Wow. But yeah, that was uh, that was a big, big, deep, dark secret of rock and roll. Dead boy saw cheap tricks to show Max. <laughs> oh God, that's, that is so cool.
Pantheon Podcast listeners, Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Well, another thing I want to ask you about is We Have Come For Your Children, because personally, I love that album, <laughs> and I know that the band wasn't real happy with it. I don't like the production. The, yeah. the song sounds so much better live. Felix just wasn't the right producer for us. We should have gone with Kenya for the second record. Um, you know, we had Kenya was, you know, in line, and, you know, couple members of the band were like, oh, they, you know, we, we were happy with that. And it was like, so, okay, well, and we want to get, we actually had, a, I actually had a fucking Lou Reed was fucking willing to do it for fucking, you know, it was cheaper than doing it in New York. We could have gone, gone and done it in Germany. Like, it was so many different ways that record could have gone. Yeah. And the way it went was just, you know, what was easy for side. They just wanted us out of town, so we were downtown. Fighting, fucking, and drinking at CBGB's all the time, you know. They were basically trying to, trying to, you know, drive a wedge between us, I guess, or whatever. I don't know what the, the whole strategy behind it was. But it was stupid. It didn't work. So it was just kind of a bad time for the band, or yeah, I mean, it was. Uh, you know, we got back. We busted our ass in the fall of '77. You know, we toured pretty much constantly from September right to the end of the year. We started off, you know, 78 with, you know, doing CBGBs all the time and then, like, the East Coast. And then we'd go and play, uh, and then they decided to fly us to Miami for six weeks. And we're like, first off, like, why did it take six weeks to fucking record an album? And second off, like, you know, <laughs> why is Felix Papalinski or whatever his name is fucking producing us, you know? Because, I mean... <laughs> It was just, 
not, you know, I mean, this guy's not the right guy, you know? You know, it was just a, it was just a bad situation. You know, they sent us back to Cleveland for a while. They sent us back. Then we came back. Then we went to Miami. Then we sat around New York, and Johnny got stabbed, you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was just a bad year, 78. We didn't get to tour finally until, like, August because of Johnny getting stabbed. And um, by then, it was, you know, we were a bigger mess than we were before. By that point, drugs had entered the picture. We were all a mess. And... You know, I know they like to blame me for doing heroin. They were just bad on alcohol and cocaine. So fuck them, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it was a different mess. You know, it was a big, big uh, clusterfuck of the pots calling each other black. And, you know, just seeds of dissension have been sown, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, obviously, Young, Loud, and Snotty is, is absolutely a classic, all-time classic. But I love... We have come for your children too. I mean, I, I mean, the, I think the songs are great. I don't really mind the production. I mean, obviously, it's your creative vision, so you have a, you, you know what you wanted it to be, or whatever. But like, I won't look back. Is such an amazing song. I just, I love oh, yeah. that song. That's what really hurt about it was the material was there, right. and we, you know, we complained because we sounded different on the first album. You know, we what to I wanted was like the first album. Yeah, we were even going to record it maybe live. You know, yeah. yeah I mean, there was there was actually a con, an album that we were going to call it, record it live and call it "Ignorance in Action." Because mm-hmm. there used to be this quote, you know, you go from back when it was a big time college bar, you know. It was something like there was nothing more frightening than ignorance and action. I forget who said it. So I think it was like Oliver Rundle Holmes or somebody like that. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so, so we decided to call the album "Ignorance and Action," you know. And we thought it'd be you know a funny name for the you know there was that and you know I think Hammer of the Dogs was a possible title too. <laughs> <laughs> Hammer of the Dogs. Yeah. Yeah, Hammer that's of great. The dogs. <laughs> So, um, but then, um, you know, we got outvoted by the record company. And by that point, you know, Seymour had already made a decision to use us as a tax write off of the remotes and talking heads. Uh-huh. So he was sending us a bunch of booze money. He could not give us tour support and shit. And then we realized, oh, they're fucking with us now. Mm-hmm. So I said the band disbanded, you know, after that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you talked about touring, like for Young Loud and Snotty. Did you guys tour all over the states? I mean, as much as you could do back then, yeah. I mean, we did all through the Midwest, all down through Texas, all down through uh, 
you know, the South, Atlanta, D.C. But we went over to England, did a 30-day tour with the damned over there. We were scheduled to go do a tour with the Flamin' Groovies. But um, our behavior and our reputation for blowing bands off the stage got to the, the Flamin' Groovies heard about it and threw us off the tour before we played a note. <laughs> they were just basically scared to have us on tour with them, so... You know, we were fine with that. But like I said, 78 wasn't a good year and uh, a lot of frustrations. <laughs> well, I think about the Dead Boys on tour and I, I think about that infamous Sex Pistols tour where they would invade some of these cities and they didn't necessarily get a, a warm welcome. I wonder, did the Dead Boys have any similar experiences with some of the places that you went to play? Not really in America, but over in Europe, I mean, over in England, yeah, we were first gig. We were, well, we, we um, you know, we played with the Dan at CBGB's, and that's why we did the tour. We got along really good with those guys. Mm-hmm. It's back to the first gig in Cambridge, and, um, you know, I got reunited with Brian and, and uh, Captain. And we decided to walk down and have, have a drink at the pub, right? And we get down, down you know, we were just walking through downtown Cambridge, England, you know, looking at the sights, and this old, little old lady, a little crone-looking lady, comes out with two big, like, burly, fucking, like, Scottish-looking guys behind her, you know. And one of them's got a club in his hand. And they see us, we see, we're walking towards the club, and she comes out and stands there with these two guys, and goes, you're not drinking in here, mate! <laughs> <laughs> Like, okay, well, I guess you're right. We're not. They saw, you know? they saw you coming and they came out to say, no, oh, not here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, me and Gita were going, like, a captain, uh, this happened all the time. It was all, all the time. You know? <laughs> like, as was the people spitting on you while you were playing. I didn't, I never got used to that. You know, that was just foul. Ugh. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds terrible. It, yeah. That was horrible, man. You fucking. These kids were fucking experts at it. They could hit you in your hand during a solo. I mean, it was... <laughs> they could hit you, they could hit you anywhere. And it was like they... The lights would come up, and about halfway through the set, the fucking whole place would smell like gob. It was horrible. Ugh. Oh, man. You know, we had to go home and wash our clothes every night. Ugh. <laughs> One thing I wanted to ask you is if you have any Gigi Allen stories <laughs> that you would want to share. Well, I mean, you know, me and Gigi were good friends because, you know, I knew Gigi just before he was the Gigi everybody else knows. You know, he had, he had his band up there in uh, New Hampshire for a while. He was kind of a normal, like almost kind of Sean Cassidy-looking guy. Yeah. <laughs> You know, denim jacket and all that. He was a real nice guy. So we were up there much late, and he actually sat in on drums at me one time when our drummer got sick and he had to go home. 
I mean, like a series of gigs. I like, mean, like Boston and Providence and a couple other towns, New Haven and all that. Was the human neurologists, whatever they were called, you know? This was before the murder junkies. This was they were called. I guess one of my favorite G.E. Allen stories is, you know, he was in town to do a gig and, you know, everybody was talking about it. And me and my girlfriend were like lying in bed one Sunday, Sunday, one Sunday morning watching a movie or something like that. And our buzzer rings. And we lived like in a six floor walk up. So I got, you know, I went over and buzzed whoever it was in. And it's like, I had to go out and yell out, who is it, right? Because <laughs> our, our speaker didn't work. <laughs> and. And I hear him going, it's Gigi. And I said, okay, cool. And so I said, yeah, come on up, you know. My girlfriend's like, you know, I'm like, well, you know, throw some clothes. You know, Gigi Allen's coming up, you know. She's like, you kidding me? Gigi Allen? He's going to fucking this place. And she's like freaking out. <laughs> Gigi comes in, and he's got this, like, real pretty little punk girl with her, you know. And totally fucking pretty much sober except for like you know maybe he had a beer or something like that but he wasn't like fucked up or anything you know he came up and wanted to come up and smoke a joint and hang out with me for a while so we did you know and he was like totally polite and nice and you know my girlfriend was completely freaked out because he was expecting this monster to come in yeah <laughs> you know and he wasn't at all you know and uh so that was that's pretty much my favorite Gigi Allen story because it just kind of shows the duality as a man, you know? Right. He was a good guy, you know? It was, uh, I hated to see Gigi go, man, because he was, uh, he had a good heart. So how do, how do you think he ended up with that, the image? <laughs> I mean, obviously, he chose to... Yeah, to, uh, I don't know. ...develop that insane image and that insane uh, stage performance <laughs> that he would put on. I mean, that's what, you know, I mean, if I would, whenever I went to see him, if I was, you know, if he showed up, I, I would stand by the back door. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because, yeah, my friend Chris talked about he went to a Gigi Allen show, and it's like every time Gigi came off the stage, they would just run for the back. <laughs> yeah. 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 Because, like, because, you know, because, I mean, I knew there was going to be, you know, the lot of shit involved, and I didn't want to get it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <It's> like... <laughs> It's, you know, who smart man's going to stand there and let that get all over, you know? Nobody, <laughs> huh? Yeah, that's worse than the gobbing. <laughs> yeah. Some kid came up to me one time, he goes, he gives me a safety pin. I go, what am I supposed to do with this, right? And he goes, I was going to be really an honor if you and me pierced our ears with the safety pin at the same time. I was looking to him, what, your nuts that are hurt? <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> you know, no, I'm not doing that, you know? Yeah, people have like preconceived notions about about a punk rock guy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, thinking like I'm gonna bite the fucking head off my, you know, the neck off my beard, fucking, you know. <laughs> it's like you know, I don't know what goes through people's heads. Was with Gigi Allen? Was it like an element of like performance art? I think in his mind, it probably was. Yeah, you know, I've no, I've never known exactly why he did that. I mean, I've never. Because that's me to shake up a beer bottle put it up my ass. But, you know. I might be missing something. I don't know. You know? <laughs> 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 
Talking Heads. We're Blondie. We're the Ramones. We're the Dead Boys. Patty Smith Group. Lou Reed. You're a rock star. What does CBGB stand for? Country Bluegrass Blues. We have a band. CBGB gets new customers buying drinks. We get to play for an audience. You might want to consider an exterminator. Not very country. Hard to get Conway Twitty down to the Bowery. You have no idea what's about to happen here. You gotta spend money to make money. You gotta have money to spend money to make money. We've had some complaints. I'm not a very patient man, so I suggest you give me what I came here for. You treat me right. I'll treat you right. How <laughs> you been, Leslie? Call me that. City's cracking down. Hill L. Crystal. Divorced. Two bankrupts. I've been thinking I should start managing some of those bands. I am going to get them a record deal, and they are going to be big. These kids have something to say. We really should listen. You're punks. Anything bad, anything wrong, you want to do it. What are you doing? Investing. That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. We got bills to pay. You have no vision, Merv. What happens to the cash at the end of the night? I put it in the freezer. Why would you save for your dreams? Why not live your dreams? Nobody is gonna like you guys, but I'll have you back. We got four songs. I don't wanna walk around with you. I don't wanna be tame. Anything you wanna do? We're working on something now. Something positive? Yeah, it's, it's called... I wanna sniff some glue. Clean those targets. They're disgusting. Your dog is crapping everywhere. This is not a kennel. You're gonna wanna crank it. Uh -oh. Not a bad night. Nearly electrocuted a guy. Double the attendance. CBGB. Country. Bluegrass. Blues. But without all that country bluegrass or blues. You play too loud. I'm walking out. Another claim to fame that you have is that you were played in a movie by Ron Weasley from Harry Potter. <laughs> yes, yes. And that was uh, that was quite quite an honor. I tell you, cause my son was about eight when there was seven or eight when that happened. Yeah. It was big in the Harry Potter movies, and boy, Dad got to take him to the movie set, and he got to meet Snape and fucking Ron Weasley, and all. He was thrilled. Oh wow, and, that's awesome! Oh yeah, they, they treated him great, and you know it was cool. Got to meet all all people in the movie. They were all it was a great cast. I mean, the movies you know should have done better than it did. I thought you know people just didn't get it. Did did Rupert Grint like hang out with you and and do research and stuff? Well, we did. He had already researched pretty good. Yeah. You know, we sat and talked. You know, we hung out quite a bit afterwards. But you know, while he was doing the movie, but it, it, I got to like this his first day on set, so he was kind of just you know doing. I, mean, I was amazed because like he did me really, he did me really well for some spots. You know, uh -huh. I mean, on stage was probably his only weak spot. He, he did me. He did a pretty fair imitation. You know. Something there. There is definitely something there. The dead boys, as long as they don't take their name too seriously. Ellie Crystal. Jim Crow. That was good. Huh? That was really good. Thank you, sir. That means a lot, you know. The dog is crapping on the floor, sir. Yeah, he does that. I piss in ice machines. Where are you guys from? Cleveland, sir. 
Well, I'm impressed with the youth of Cleveland. Oh, you shouldn't be. Why not? A lot of losers. Rupert, what were you trying to capture in playing in playing Cheetah and your portrayal of him? Um, I don't know. I mean, obviously, I wanted it to be kind of authentic um, and do Cheetah justice. Um, it was quite. I felt quite pressure, kind of having uh, Cheetah on set. <laughs> uh, yeah, he can't believe it. But um, yeah, I mean, it was great. great did he, uh, did, did Cheetah give you pointers or anything? No, not kind of like formally. He, it, just kind of observing him, just being around him and getting to know him. Um, that was that was really helpful for me. And just yeah, I mean, uh, I couldn't believe I couldn't believe he was alive. Um, <laughs> we got along great, you know, Rupert Doss. You know, he was a good, good kid, and um, got to hang out with him a couple times after the movie was made. You know, uh -huh. and we liked the guy. And Al Rickman, of course, who played Hilly, was was a great guy too, man. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hang out with him a few times. He was a good man. Yeah, there's a show on Apple TV that Rupert is in now. I love his character on that show. I, what? Oh, is that the Serpents? Yes. It's called Serpents. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's like M Night yeah. Shamalama Ding Dongs. <laughs> He's, yeah, yeah. Oh, you, you call him that too? Yeah. <laughs> 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 I was calling too. Yeah. I, I love um, uh Rupert is so great on that show. His character's the yeah. best part of the whole show. Yeah, yeah, he's a good little actor, man. Yeah. I'll give you fifty K cash. But here's what I want for it. When Dorothy gets back home tonight, the baby's gonna be in that crib. The breathing, kicking, pissing one. Agreed? Other than that, you know, I'm pretty much ready to hit the road and, you know, Jake's all ready. Everybody's ready. The band members lined up. Yeah, so you're, you've are you got a new a new version of the Dead Boys that, that you're going to take yeah. on the road? Yeah, well, right now it's, you know, we'll see if it's a new version or not. it got to give us a tour. Got to give it the tour test, you know? Uh -huh. Yeah, I've got, you know, it's me, Jake. We've got um, Les Warner from The Cult playing bass. Instead of drums, now <laughs> he's decided to switch. Uh -huh. um, got um, my old drummer Chris Alana's back, and I've got um, what do you call this guy named Monk Burris on guitar. That is a friend of a uh, friend of Les's. It just happens to be fits in perfectly. So you know, we're really looking forward to it. So Les and Monk were just here for um, the weekend last weekend to rehearse with me. And that went swimmingly, and oh, I'm just ready to get, you know, get out of the house and get back on the road. It's been fucking too long. Yeah. Like, oh, I hated losing two years, two or three years, you know, right there, because, you know, the COVID thing was just ridiculous. Canceled the tour four times, postponed it, you know? Right. Which was supposed to happen in May, guess what I did in April? Fractured my foot. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. So finally, finally getting ready to, to head out. I'm just ready to, to get there and see some people and play some music and kick some ass. Awesome. It's going to be good. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, you know, we've got some several projects lined up for next year, including a new Dead Boys record and uh, some other side projects I'm going to be doing that are going to be pretty, pretty interesting. Do you got all the songs written for another Dead Boys album? 
we're working on it. We got uh-huh. two or three of them pretty well ready to go, and we're still, you know, we're going to be doing a lot of writing on this tour because we're going to have a lot of time in the van, and no gear in it for. So that's going to be nice. <laughs> you know, like we can pull the guitars out and work in the van if we want to. How many shows are you doing on the tour? Oh God, it's, a lot. We start, yeah, pretty much, pretty much five weeks. Uh huh. We're doing from you know we start in Texas and to go up to to the Midwest and the East Coast and back to back to Texas where you know we basically drive across the United States and start in fucking San Diego. With a couple, you know, we're basically take a week long road trip across the, you know, a couple of guys are flying home, but being a tour manager and drummer are going to drive cross country just because that's what we like to do. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. We, we, we're, we're happiest on the road. We're happy, you know, me and, a couple, me and Tony and Chris put us in a fucking van and we are happiest pigs and shit. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. (laughs) 